predicted that the world would end on a certain date and even convinced hundreds and thousands of their followers to buy RVs and to go caravanning around America advertising this apocalypse. But here we are. Just so you know, being weird and trying to predict the end of the world like this is not a new phenomenon. It goes back several centuries. Men as far back as the church father Irenaeus thought that the world would end in 500 A.D. And his measurements were based on the measurements of Noah's Ark. I don't really know how he got there or how he did that. but Pope Innocent III, who some have called the last good pope, predicted that the world would end in 1284, exactly 666 years, according to his calculations, after the rise of Islam. Even our beloved brother, the champion of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, was certain that the world would not last longer than 1600 A.D. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, thought that Christ would certainly come back in the year 1836 based off of his studies and calculations in the book of Revelation. But it's not just Christians who like to try to predict the end of the world. Just a few years ago, the world was vibrating with excitement about this Mayan calendar and how the world was supposedly going to end, and how this ancient civilization had been able to tell that the world was going to end. Several astrologers over the centuries have predicted, according to the patterns of the stars, the end of the world as well. Christopher Columbus predicted that the world would end in 1658 because, well, there's just no way that the world could last longer than 7,000 years. And the list goes on. Charles Manson thought that the world would erupt in an apocalyptic race war in 1986, he may have just been a few decades off, but he thought for sure that a race war was going to be the thing that was going to end the world. Pastor Chuck Smith of the famous Calvary Chapel predicted that the generation of 1948 would be the last generation on this earth and that the world would end in 1981. Now, Pastor Chuck Smith admitted that he could be wrong, but then he said, quote, I have a deep conviction in my heart that this is true. And all of my plans are predicated upon this belief. End quote. From Isaac Newton to Harold Camping, from Nostradamus to Farrakhan, from Jerry Falwell to James Dobson, from Orthodox Muslims to stargazing atheists, the world is in no shortage of people telling it when it should expect to die. What does Jesus have to say about the end of the world, the day of his return, and how are we supposed to think about it as his followers? Well, I think that we can see some of that in today's text. It's a long one. We're reading all of chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles, open them. If you don't, open your phones. And if you have one of these little string things in your Bibles that you use to kind of keep track, I'd encourage you to keep it in there or keep your finger in your Bible because we're dealing with an entire chapter, so we're going to be coming back and looking at the text pretty frequently. But for now, let's read Mark chapter 13 together. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will the sign be when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, 
See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be first proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and the children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, for those days who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Father, I pray that you would help us to stay awake this morning as we hear your word, and then that you would help us to be vigilant as we live out our lives faithfully as disciples of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Who knows what kind of a day it was 
when Jesus and his disciples in this text walked out of the temple for the very last time. It must have been a decently nice day because they had time and the weather was nice enough for them to just stand there and observe the temple. That's what we see in verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 13 shows us a disciple who stops to admire the temple, to admire the temple and to, to comment on it, saying, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And this disciple was right to be amazed. The temple that was begun when the Jews were returning from exile was then taken into the hands of Herod, the leader of the Romans. And he had a penchant for style and for extravagance. This was kind of their, hey, we're sorry that we dominated you and our boot is on your neck. Let us do something nice for you to make up for it. So Herod went and set about rebuilding the temple. And it was amazing. By the time of Jesus' arrival on the scene, the temple was about a mile in circumference. Some of the stones were upwards of 40 feet long, 15 feet high, and 11 feet deep, weighing over a million pounds. The temple was massive, glorious. But if you remember, thus far in the book of Mark, Jesus has not been too kind to the temple. See, he's already pronounced his curse on the temple in the parable of the fig tree. He's already cleansed the temple, and he's gone at it with the Sanhedrin, these leaders of the temple, anytime he comes into contact with them. It's as if Jesus isn't particularly impressed by the style and extravagance of the temple because he recognizes that ultimately it's dead on the inside. So this disciple who has seen all this, he knows all this, he stops and makes kind of a dumb comment. Look how great this temple is, Jesus. Look how amazing it is. And that is what leads Jesus in verse 2 to launch into his teaching. It says if Jesus is saying, this temple is cursed, and as great as it is, it cannot withstand my judgment. Look at verse 2. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, given the size of the stones that I just told you, that is a magnificent claim. And it's true. What Jesus says here actually happened. In 70 AD, the Romans, led by the Emperor Titus, came in and utterly razed Jerusalem to the ground. The temple as well. The destruction was so absolute that the Jewish historian Josephus, commenting on the desolation of the temple, wrote this. Caesar ordered the whole city and the temple to be razed to the ground. All the rest of the wall encompassing the city was so completely leveled that all future visitors to the spot couldn't believe that it had ever been inhabited. But that's in 70 A.D. In today's text, we're still in 30 A.D., before the destruction. And as Jesus teaches on this destruction of the temple, naturally some of his disciples have questions. And as they've done so many times, a couple of his disciples wait until they're alone with Jesus to ask him more. Help us understand. Look at verse 4. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, before we can begin looking at how to answer those questions that the disciples ask, we have to do something that I know maybe some of you have been excited about, some of you have been dreading. We have to talk about eschatology. If you don't know what that word means, it's okay. It's just a fancy theological word that means the end times, the eschaton, what's going to happen at the very end. 
Some of us love that. Some of us wish the pairs and spares room would be covered from floor to ceiling with diagrams from Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation with arrows and charts and string connecting events and, you know, the helicopter there represents the grasshopper in the book of Revelation. Others of us may be dreading this. You know, we may be thinking, I don't want to talk about the end times. It doesn't feel very practical. It doesn't feel very helpful. The last time I tried to read the book of Revelation, it gave me a cluster headache. I get it. I understand. I'm sympathetic to you. But I want to promise you as we go to jump into this that the point of these verses is very practical for your life. Jesus didn't just tell us about these things for nothing. He tells these things to us so that we can wrestle with them and learn from them and be better followers of him, even if we don't necessarily understand all of it immediately. Whether you love eschatology or you dread it, the important thing is is that you try to understand it. So the first thing that we're going to talk about to help us understand this text this morning is something called dual prophecy. Some of your eyes just glazed over already. One word, one phrase. In the Bible, when you see prophecy, there's often a dual prophecy at play. And here's what I mean for that. There's one fulfillment that happens immediately, and then there's another fulfillment that takes place in the far future. You can think about it like horizons. You know, there's one horizon that's right there that you can see, but the closer you get to that horizon, you see that there's another horizon off in the distance. An example of this from your Bibles would be in the book of Isaiah, where God gives the prophet Isaiah a a prophecy for King Ahaz. And he says, King Ahaz, I promise, I'm going to give you the victory in this battle. And the way that you can know, a sign that I'm going to give you is that a child is going to be born to a young woman. And the name of that child is going to be Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. This is my way of telling you that I love you and I'm going to be with you and I'm going to give you the victory. This child, God with us, God with you. And it happened. But that wasn't the end of the prophecy because later another child will be born in Bethlehem. And his name would be called Emmanuel. And he was literally... God with us. He was Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, an angel comes along and speaks to Joseph in a dream, and this is what he says. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So you see, Isaiah prophesied something that happened immediately, but then it had another future fulfillment with the coming of Jesus. The same thing, brothers and sisters, is happening in today's text. There is a dual fulfillment. Jesus is saying... Something bad is coming, a destruction, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But that's only the first part of it. It's only the first horizon. There's actually something worse coming after that. And what's happening to Jerusalem and what's happening to the temple is just a shadow. It's pointing forward to the coming destruction, the final judgment of God. Well, how are we supposed to know which one is which? I mean, some of the things that you read in today's text sound like they could take place at any point in church history. 
They sound like they could even take place right after these events, right after Jesus' resurrection. It says, they will bring you to trial and deliver you over. Jesus says, brother will deliver brother over to death, father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my namesake. Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That sounds like it's going to be pretty near in the future. As a matter of fact, the Emperor Titus was famous for getting Christians to have their children tell on their parents and parents tell on their children, as was the Roman Tacitus. He would get Christians to turn in other Christians so that their suffering would be less. But other things that Jesus says in today's text seem obviously to only be referring to very far future events. He says things like, the gospel must be first proclaimed to all the nations. Well, that still hasn't happened yet. He says, if the Lord has not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Finally, in verses 24 through 27, he says this. After the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Well, that hasn't happened yet. If it seems like as you read this text, some of these things might happen soon and some of them might happen later, it's because some of them happen soon and some of them are still to come. You ever been mountain climbing before? If you haven't, you might not know about false summits. You can watch it on the Discovery Channel, same thing. There's something called a false summit. It's when you've been climbing the mountain and you've been struggling it feels like you've been going forever. You're never going to get to the top. And then you see what you think is the summit, the peak of the mountain. You get excited. You get a burst of energy, second wind. But the closer you get to the top of that summit, you realize that you're not actually at the real summit. You can see past it. and You see that there's another summit up further beyond it. It's incredibly discouraging. And that's what this prophecy is like. There's an immediate summit, a close fulfillment, but then there's another one still coming in the distance. So how are we supposed to figure out which is which? In order to answer that, I want to talk about cryptography, something that I know very little about. Cryptography is the science of code breaking. Perhaps the most famous code ever broken was the Enigma Code during World War II. Alan Turing famously cracked this German code, and he played a decisive role in helping us win the war against Germany. There's even a movie about it. This is how a lot of Christians think that they need to approach the end times. This is how a lot of Christians feel like they need to approach what Jesus is saying here in, Matthew, excuse me, in Mark chapter 13. There's a key here, there's a code and I need to figure out how to crack the code. I need to figure out what the key is to help me understand the key to victory in these last days. But brothers and sisters, there is no code to crack. As a matter of fact, Jesus could not be clear. You will not know the day or the hour of his return. He doesn't even know it. Look at verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. 
And the next verse is the key to how Christians ought to think about the end times. Look at verse 33. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. So not only are you not supposed to try to figure out when the the last day is going to be here, when Jesus is going to finally come back, but it's precisely because you can't know the last day that you need to be on guard and be prepared. I feel like Jesus is so incredibly wise in the way that he designed this. I think Jesus knows that if we knew the last day, we would be complacent as we waited for it. He's not coming back until the year 2050. So in the year 2011, I'm just going to kind of coast and chill. I got a long time. Like a student that knows that their research paper isn't due until May 5th and waits until May 3rd to get started on it because they feel like they just have so much time. But just because we don't know exactly when all of these things will come to pass doesn't mean that we can't know when they're on their way. That's the whole point of verses 28 through 30. Look at verses 28 through 30 with me. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch comes t- becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Jesus uses this simple agricultural illustration to try to teach us that even though you can't know when Jesus is going to be here, you can know when Jesus is near. Now, this morning's sermon does not allow us to take the time to look at all the symbols and all the signs that are given to us here in these verses. So I just want to tell you my interpretation of them, and then we'll talk a little bit about that. I think we are living in the last days. I think that we are living in the tribulation. I don't think that there is a tribulation to come I think the time between Jesus' resurrection and the time of His second coming is the tribulation. Now, I need you to know that I could be wrong about this. I'm not nearly as confident as some theologians are in their end times convictions. The end times have 50 different views, and all of them have sub-views and sub-categories. Some of them are more convincing. Some of them have holes big enough in them that you could drive a semi through. But my job as a pastor is to stand before you and to tell you God's word. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells me that I'm going to be judged more strictly because of the fact that I stand before you and I preach God's word to you. And what that does for me is it makes me want to be very honest with you. When I know something, when I really know it, I'll stand up here and I'll live for it and I'll die over it. There's things that I will go to jail for. There's things that I'll be killed for. There's things that I will be fired from this church for if I have to be. I pray that none of those things ever happen and that I don't have to actually put my money where my mouth is. But there are certain things that I just don't know. You know, in verse 14, we see Jesus talking about the abomination of desolation standing in the place where it ought not to be. I don't know what that means. I spent all week studying this text. I read what 15 different people had to say about that, and I didn't find any one of them particularly convincing. I prayed and I asked the Lord to illuminate my mind so that I could tell you what that meant this, this week. But you know what? Sunday got here before I really could figure it out. 
So now I just do my best to stand before you and role model humility and to say that I don't know, I don't understand, or I could be wrong. But I don't know should never be the last word. There's no virtue in ignorance. There's no reward for doubt. I couldn't wrap my arms around it before Sunday got here and I had to preach it. That doesn't mean that I'm going to let it go. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to pursue truth. And the same thing is true for you. Just because something isn't of first importance or just because something is complicated or difficult doesn't mean that you should just settle on not knowing the answer. Pray. Ask the Lord. Search the Scriptures. Yeah. But there are some things that I do know from this text. I know that God intends for this text, Jesus intended for this text to be very practical for our lives. The whole point of this text is not about what's going to happen in the future, but rather how you should live right now in the present. As Jesus' disciples, he's not calling us to crack some code about the day that he's going to come back. He's calling us to live faithfully right now here in the present as we wait for him to come back. Over and over again in this text, he says things like, do not be deceived, or stand firm, or do not be anxious, or do not be concerned. So with that being said, I want to give you six points from this morning's text about how all of what Jesus says here should help us to be more faithful as his disciples. Note takers, you ready? Point number one. False prophets will try to lead God's people astray. False prophets will try to lead God's people astray. Do not be deceived. Look at verses 21 through 23. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. I love the fact that Jesus recognizes that he's telling us what to do in advance. He's giving us the answers to the test. I'm telling you, don't be caught off guard when some guy comes back trying to lead you astray. Jesus says, I don't care if he's doing miracles or if he has a thousand dollar smile. If he comes back calling himself the Messiah... You know it isn't real. Don't be deceived. You'll know that Jesus is coming back for real because his return is going to be unmistakable. Look at verses 24 through 26. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. That's going to be pretty unmistakable. Stars falling from heaven. The Lord Jesus coming back with 10,000 of his angels. The passage that we read this morning from the book of Revelation talks of Jesus' second coming. There's going to be no deceived Excuse me, there's going to be no deception when we see this. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a short, sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This will be utterly unmistakable. Some guy coming back doing magic tricks for you should not lead you to be deceived. Number two. Instead of trying to interpret the wars and rumors of wars, just don't be alarmed by them. Do not be alarmed. Jesus is in control. Look at verse 7. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Jesus is telling us that when these things happen, we'll be prepared and we'll be okay. We don't have a reason to be alarmed because we know that Jesus is sovereign over them. But he also says that these wars and these rumors of wars, it's not the end. It's just a sign that the end has begun. In verse 9, he says that these are the beginning of the birth pains. That imagery is powerful, especially if you've ever given birth. That, that first contraction when it hits you, it it hits hard and fast. And just like a woman, when she first feels that very first contraction, she knows that, okay, the baby's coming. It's not here, but it's coming. In the same way, when the wars and the rumors of wars and all these bad things begin to happen, we know that Jesus isn't here, but that the end has begun. But either way, we shouldn't be alarmed. You know, this is typical of Jesus. In Scripture, He all the time tells us not to be anxious. Part of the Beatitudes, do not be anxious. Why? Because God is in control. Don't be anxious because your anxiety won't change anything. Don't be anxious because Jesus has already told you how this story is going to end. Don't be anxious because Jesus loves you and he's coming back to get you. And that's point number three. Remember that Jesus loves you. Look at verse 20. There were seven, excuse me, wrong chapter, verse 20. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Here Jesus says, things could be a whole lot worse. But because I love my children who were on the earth and suffering at that time, I'm not going to prolong the suffering. When Jesus finally comes back for good, one of the first things that he's going to do is to gather all of his elect, which is just a word that means especially loved by God. He's going to come back and gather his elect to himself. Look at verses 26 and 27. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. For God's elect... For God's holy, loved children, the return of Jesus Christ is not something to fear, 
but something to be comforted by. Objective number one when Jesus comes back is the gathering of us, of his people to himself. So yes, be on guard, be ready, but also know that when the judge comes, he's not coming to kill indiscriminately. He's coming back on a rescue mission for his bride. That's you, me. Number four, we will be hated and persecuted. But don't be anxious. Jesus is in control. Look at verses 9 through 11. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. In the time between Jesus' resurrection and his second coming, our job is to bear witness to him. 2,000 years ago or today, in China or in Jerusalem, England or Africa, believers have been called and are still being called to stand witness for Jesus in the midst of great suffering and persecution. And Jesus tells us not to be anxious. He says you don't have to be anxious because when you do have to go bear witness, you don't have to think of something clever to say. You don't have to think of something powerful to communicate to this king and this governor and this ruler. I'm going to speak for you. That's what Jesus says. This is so incredibly practical. Just even think about how many times you've been afraid to evangelize. You've been afraid to share your faith and share the gospel. What if I say something dumb? What if this person's smarter than me? What if I get mumbled in my words? I don't don't know that I'm competent to be a witness for Jesus. Well, brothers and sisters, you're not. You're not. Nobody is. But Jesus is sufficient. His spirit is powerful. In the same way that when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit comes and intercedes for us and gives us the words to pray. When we don't know how to bear witness to people and to share the gospel with people, His Spirit comes and gives us the word. He gives us the wisdom. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a situation with somebody and I've been trying to communicate with them and it's just been going absolutely terribly according to my standards. And, you know, oh, I wasn't very eloquent and that wasn't very powerful, but the Lord used it. And oftentimes, the kind of words that he uses are not the kind of words that we think he would use. He uses foolishness, not the wisdom of this world. He uses people who don't know how to communicate well, like Moses, not the men who are the most fantastic orators in all of human history. He's more inclined to use a man with a stutter than a Winston Churchill. And that's good news for you and for me. Because we all need help being faithful as we bear witness to Jesus. This text should be a comfort to us. Number five. Many will fall away, but you will know who belongs to Jesus by their endurance. Many will fall away, but you will know who belongs to Jesus by their endurance. You know the old cliched phrase, it's not about how you start the race, but how you finish it? Look at verse 22. 
For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. If a man is drowning in a pool and he manages to swim his way up right to the very water's edge, only to pass out and have his lungs filled with water and float back down to the bottom and die. Was he ever really safe? Well, in the same way, if we believe in Jesus for a moment, have we ever really believed in Jesus? If we turn away from our sins for a day or a month or a year, but not ultimately, not finally, have we ever really turned away from our sins? If we think that we're saved, but we don't make it to heaven, did we ever really make it past the water's edge? You know that someone belongs to Christ if they are continuing to follow Christ and turn away from their sin. Your job during these last days is not to crack the code and figure out the mysteries, the dates of Christ's return. It's to persevere. It's to stand firm. Just like when the plane is going down, the stewardess says, if the plane goes down, you put your own max on first to make sure that you stay awake and conscience. Your number one priority in these last days is to make sure that you endure, that you stand firm in the faith. What does it matter if Jesus comes back, if when he comes back to find you, he finds you unfaithful? Point number six, stay awake. Stay awake. Look at verses 33 through 36. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to all, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. In the military, they have something called guard duty. That's when everyone else that you're with gets to go to sleep, but you have to stay awake and pull guard. And your job is to stand there or to sit there and to watch and to make sure, you know, in wartime is to make sure that the enemy doesn't creep up on you. You're supposed to be vigilant, scanning the horizons, making sure there's no movement in the shadows, there's no evidence of the enemy coming to get you. And if the enemy does come and get you, you know that the guy who was on guard duty wasn't really paying attention. Well, in the same way, Jesus gives us this illustration of a man who leaves, but leaves one of his servants to watch the door. And this servant has one job. He doesn't have to take care of getting water. He doesn't have to take care of preparing food. He doesn't have to take care of cleaning or managing the household finances. He has one job. Sit at the door and stay awake. Be vigilant. And I love at the end of that, he says, what I say to you, disciples, I say to all, stay awake. That means he's saying it to us, members of Sixth Avenue. Stay awake, stay alert, stay vigilant. 
Don't let this world lull you into a state of spiritual listlessness. Just like in Russell's prayer where he talked about how easy it is for our phones or our programming that we watch on TV to to slowly bring us and draw us into sin. In the same way, it's so easy for the things of this world to just slowly sing us a lullaby until we fall asleep. For most people, two to three in the afternoon is the worst time of the day. Right? It's when apparently you need to buy a five-hour energy or a monster or a Red Bull or something else. That's when that heavy lunch that you ate because you skipped breakfast because you're trying to lose weight but then you just ate a really big lunch to compensate for it. It's when that really heavy meal is sitting right there on your stomach and all the blood is leaving your extremities, going to your stomach to help you digest. And your insulin levels, which were skyrocketing, are now beginning to crash. And you're sitting there at your desk at work, you know, nodding to not put Z's all the way across your Word document. This is kind of what could happen to Christians. If we're not careful, if we're not vigilant, We can be lulled to sleep. But don't. Do not let the master come home and find you asleep at your post. The country of Congo has had two major conflicts. Uh, Both of them were utterly devastating. Congo is a very poor country. Much of it is rural. Most of the people there live in villages. And uh, when the first war began, many villages weren't sure if the fighting would ever reach them. One night, a man in a village woke up to hear the sound of an explosion in the distance. He could only barely hear it. The sound was just ever so faint. He couldn't even feel the vibrations. But he knew what it was. He knew it was an explosion. He knew that the fighting had come within several kilometers of him. The way that the fighting was going in this war at this time, the rebels and the soldiers could have ended up in his village within a day, or it could have taken them six months, a year, for the fighting to get to them. But the sound of that distant explosion let him know that the battle was coming. He was more awake now, after he heard that, than he was before. He was more vigilant. He didn't know the day or the hour that the battle would be there, but he knew that it was coming. He heard the sign. And from here on out, he was going to live his life. And everyone in that village, they were going to live their life in light of this coming reality. Life went on for the man and his family. They continued to get water from the river every day. They continued to eat their food and they washed their clothes. They sent their children to school, but they did each one of these things now with more vigilance. Now when they went to go get water, they went in pairs of two. Now when the children went to school, the father walked with them. Now as they prepared their food, they seemed to eat just a little bit more quickly than usual. But what if the people in this village knew for a fact that they would make it through this war? What if they knew for a fact that even though the fighting was going to reach their village, they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that they would survive, that they would make it out of the war. What effect would that have on them? Well, we know, brothers and sisters, we know that we will make it through these tribulations. 
we know for a fact that we will make it through these dark and terrible times. Look at verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus says, listen, if everything in the universe, if all of the heavens collapse and the celestial bodies fall from the sky, if everything on this earth gives way beneath your feet, you can still trust that my promises are not going to fail. And this is where our confidence lies. This Jesus who loves us, who's coming back to get us, who's warning us and preparing us and who will ultimately save us, this Jesus His word will outlive the heavens and the earth. The same heavens and the earth that he created by the power of his word. So why should we fear kings and rulers? Our king is Christ. Why should we fear wars and rumors of wars? We know that our victory is secure because of Jesus. Why should we be anxious, trusting in our own power to persevere, our own power to communicate? Jesus has given us his power, His word, His promises. So let us lean on Him and trust in His enduring word. As Jesus came into the temple for the first time several chapters back in the book of Mark, the text tells us that He entered through the Mount of Olives. Today, as Jesus exits the temple for the last time, the text tells us that He is standing on the Mount of Olives as He foretells the death and destruction of the temple. But before this temple is destroyed, Jesus will be destroyed. As we continue through the book of Mark, we are rapidly approaching the death of Jesus. So I would like to encourage you, maybe even this afternoon, but some point in the next week, read the rest of the book of Mark on your own. Meditate on the death of Jesus. Ask yourself why Jesus had to die. Was it political or merely political? Did he have to die just to fulfill some prophecy? Or was it because of our sin? Was it because of you and me? I want to encourage you to ask yourself what this means for you and for your life and for your sin and your faith. And to come back next week ready and prepared to hear more of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us texts that are hard, that are difficult for us to wrap our minds around. They remind us that you are a God who is so much bigger than us. We pray that the truth that we have received today would impact our lives. And we pray that you would bless us as we go back out into the world. In your son's name we pray.